0: Here's one small clip of an upcoming conversation on this episode of the Beaver Tales podcast.
1: I felt like I was just a a passenger in this spaceship or airplane that was about to take off. I cleared the bar by several inches. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my other competitors there said that was the best jump in the history of the high jump.
0: Before you hear the rest of that conversation, I'd like to mention Children's Garden, one of my favorite charities to mention on this podcast. I personally know the two people who run this house in the Philippines, where kids who are living on the street or teenagers who weren't really getting education come and live in this house. They oftentimes will finish high school while they're there, head on to college. Amazing stories have happened with these kids who come and live at Children's Garden. I'd highly recommend checking them out at childrensgarden.ph. That link's in the show description. And I hope you Enjoy listening to this episode of the podcast. This is the Beaver Tales podcast with Josh Ward, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Hello, once again, everybody. I'm Josh Wharton with the Beaver Tales podcast, talking with former Oregon State athletes about their playing career, what they've done since then. And I'm getting a return guest today. For basically the first time, John Ratatich has already joined me on a podcast to talk about his world record in the high jump. But here's the thing, he set two world records in the high jump. We only covered one of those two in the first podcast. We'll be talking more about the second world record he set, as well as the 1968 Olympic trials that he competed in right before the Mexico City Olympics and his relationship with Dick Fosbury, who basically revolutionized the high jump, created the Fosbury flop technique, the technique that everyone uses to this day in high jump. So a lot of topics to cover with John Raditich. If you did miss the first podcast, you can listen to this one without listening to that one. I would recommend it, but just a quick recap, John Raditich was a standout high jumper at Oregon State. Actually developed the flop technique because he was teammates with dick fosbury he's just a year behind dick one of his earliest memories of athletic competition was when he went to stanford stadium as a spectator in 1962 it was a meet between the ussr and america a track and field meet between communism and the free world it was dubbed and john ratatich was there watching this event and that was a pretty significant moment in his career of becoming familiar with some of the most impressive track and field athletes and then later joining their ranks and setting world records himself, he'll bring up that meet kind of towards the end of our conversation. Not only will we talk about Raditich's two world records, we also talk about the Olympic trials in 1968. Now, both John Raditich and Dick Fosbury, teammates at Oregon State, qualified for the Olympic trials down in Lake Tahoe in California, where they tried to go high altitude to become familiar with the altitude in Mexico City where Dick Fosbury would go on to qualify for the Olympics and win the gold medal in the high jump that year. This whole story of the Olympic trials is laid out in the book The Wizard of Foz. It's a tremendous book I just finished. It's by Bob Welch who wrote basically a biography on Dick Fosbury and it talks a lot about John Raditic and the whole story of Lake Tahoe. There was a lot of significant moments on the track and field in competition, but also away from it. One of them was a story basically outlining, as it puts it, how John Ratatich saved Dick Fosbury's life. Now, John would tell the story a slightly different way, and he'll share his perspective and his memory of what happened. The story, in its more dramatic terms is that the two were swimming to an island in Lake Tahoe and got stuck, or at least Dick Fosbury kind of ran out of gas and was really cold. It's up high altitude, the temperature's in the low 60s in the water, and he felt he couldn't make it to shore, and John Ratatich basically swam him to the island. Again, John will downplay it and not qualify it as, I saved Dick Fosbury's life, or maybe he'd say it facetiously as he puts it, but he'll share his story. But point being, the way the book puts it at least, is that Dick himself – basically said, I don't think I would have made it if not for John Ratatich being there. So you'll see John be humble about it and uh, tell his side of things. But also he did clear seven feet for the first time in his career on high jump and later in the pro circuit following his oregon state career setting a couple world records in indoor high jump ratatich went on to serving as the athletic director at the albany boys and girls club and coaching track and field high jump at a number of different spots so he's been busy ever since so legendary oregon state high jumper john ratatich joins me for round two on the beaver Tales podcast Well, John, since we've last talked, you've been to Diamond Lake, Clear Lake, got back from Crater Lake, some pretty amazing places. Does Crater Lake take the cake as the most scenic place in the Beaver State?
1: Um, Yeah, perhaps.
0: Okay. It's <laughs> it, a tough it, competition.
1: I mean, there's, there's so many cool places. John Day, the fossil beds, the painted hills, and the Columbia Gorge, and mm-hmm. all the mountains. It's yep. just, so, yeah, it's just... It's, it's probably wherever we are that's the best spot.
0: <laughs> that's good. That's that's a good answer. A true a true Oregonian whether native or transplanted that, mm-hmm. that's a that's a good answer. Um, we'll come back to some some nice viewpoints and and areas of beauty especially Lake Tahoe partway through this conversation but let's talk about World record number two. Now we talked about the one in 1973, and our last conversation, mm-hmm. the indoor world record. Tell me about uh, the counterpart and your and your second world record and the story of that one.
1: Oh, uh, okay. Uh, that was that was kind of interesting. Uh, this was that was like the fourth the fourth year of our pro tour and stuff, and I was probably in the best shape of my life, uh, but a whole bunch of other people on the tour were not. And so it was a very short season, so it was a nice way to start it. Um, basically, uh, we, we was, I was jumping in uh, Salt Lake City at the Salt Palace. Okay. And uh, I I'd had a really good practice uh, the week before at Oregon State, you know, where I cleared seven feet about, to, I think, about 12 times in a row. So that's, that's – I don't usually practice at that kind of height. Uh, but then uh, – We went to uh, Salt Lake City and and looked at the facility there, and uh, it was a nice plywood track. And if you hit the right spot, uh, it's almost like a trampoline. Hmm. And um, up until that time, I always had the, the straddlers always got the good approaches. You know, prior prior to the meet, I went to the director. I hadn't signed my contract for the year yet and stuff. And I says, you know you got to give me a better chance. You know, you know, let me, let me set the pit up. So it'll work for, uh, we had another flopper Chris Dunn and myself. And so he said, okay. So I went out and kind of bounced around on the track a little bit and figured the perfect spot to put the standard. And one of my buddies, when he saw that, when he saw that jump, he says, it looked like you were jumping off a trampoline huh. and, and realistically I was utilizing the facility to the best of its ability. But it shocked me at, at how, how well it worked. I, I think I, we had like five jumpers. Ed Carruthers was one of the jumpers there. He was a silver medalist behind Fosbury in 68. Mm. And he was still straddling. And he was kind of grumbling because he didn't get the best of approaches that time. Mm. Uh, but anyhow, um, uh, Chris Dunn and I, uh, we basically were the top two jumpers left. And we kind of start pushing each other. And we both jumped seven, three and a half. And we thought about going to just an inch to seven four and a half. I'm going well, you know the, the record's record three quarters. So we should just go let's go an inch and a half higher, and go to seven five. And so after a, a crash and burn on my first jump, it's interesting how focused you get. Um, like on the fourth step of my approach, I slipped. Mm. But it's kind of like an airplane; it gets to the point where you have to take off regardless. Yeah. Uh, and so I. I I slipped, but I kept going, and it was a a, a big crash and burn. So that was kind of hmm, that's not really good. But that was the only lousy jump I had that day. Uh, n- next time I got over seven five, and Chris just barely missed it, and so he he ended up with seven three and a half, which was a, a, a indoor PR for him. Uh, seven five was a PR for me, uh, but I'm going I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it again, you know. And seven six. It's interesting that. You can put your body in a, in a state of mind where really your brain your conscious brain doesn 't need to do much, and so basically, I kicked it into um, overdrive or autopilot, and I felt like I was just a a passenger in this spaceship or airplane that was about to take off, and so my body did everything it was supposed to do and I cleared the bar by several inches. Uh, in fact, uh, one, of my, one of my other com- competitors there said that was the best jump in the history of the high jump. You know? But that was his, his comment, just like uh, the book that uh, Bob Welch wrote about Fosbury is in their, their perception. So I liked what he said that, so I'll, I'll go with that. And, and so it was just a screaming jump.
0: So you cleared um, seven foot six and it wasn't even close.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Goodness. that was that was really cool, and then after that 7-7, seven, seven, I kind of, I had two PRs, it just didn't work out really well, so I, you know, did what most jumpers do, uh, other than Fosbury, and I, I took my extra jumps, even though I missed three times in a row.
0: Right, uh, and what year was this uh, event in Salt Lake City?
1: Uh, 76. Okay. So I went seven, six and 76,
0: seven, six and 76. That's amazing. So when you set the record in 73 and that was seven foot three and three quarters inches at the four time, and three quarters. Four or excuse three quarters. me, four and three quarters. Thank yeah. you. Um, how long did it take before the, that record was broken?
1: Uh, I would imagine about a year Okay. and I was probably stones, but I don't, I don't really, uh, okay. that's, that's I don't care about those other guys. However, he had something to do with uh, the length of my uh, record uh, at Salt Lake City, because we jumped in the afternoon in Salt Lake, and he jumped in the evening in New York. And so apparently it wasn't long after I finished that uh, he finished in in, uh, New York as well, uh, a quarter of an inch higher. So basically it, it, it didn't last long, but it was my best jump ever. So who cares,
0: you know? The one in 76 you're talking about? seventy yeah, three. That,
1: that, was, that was absolutely my best jump ever. You know? So to, to be over a couple inches over 7'6", that was pretty good.
0: So did you technically, the world record was broken within hours of you jumping 7'6"? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and you really didn't care too much. It was more about a PR than the world no, record? No, I was
1: waiting for the next meet, you know? <laughs> I, oh, and, I'm, I'm, and then and then the season kind of got canceled. We had we had only three more meets, and it just uh, it didn't go well. Uh, you know, basically, a whole bunch of the people just they were done, they were done competing, hmm. and we didn't have the quality that we needed to continue to compete against the amateurs. Uh, primarily because we didn't get paid as much, you know. So it was better to get money under the table than have to. Uh, <laughs> So anyhow, that's, that, that's my story. I mean, I'm sticking to it. So, you know, and then what I tell kids is, you know, almost, or, or anybody actually they'll listen, um, there's always going to be somebody better and faster than you, you know. It, it's, just, it's just a matter of fact, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's going to happen. Although I guess maybe with um, Mr. Bolt, it yeah. might be a while before somebody comes along better than him. And the same with Javier Sotomayor. Um, he set the record in the high jump, about eight feet uh, half an inch, years ago, and it's still there. You know, it's like Beeman's jump lasts for a long time too in the, mm-hmm. in the long jump. But eventually, it's gonna, something's going to come along. So when you look around and and, and you, you want to know what success is, it's it's trying to do the very best that you can. Yeah. And, and realizing that nobody told me this that you can't get a PR every time you jump. You know, <laughs> but that's what I thought.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: And you know, it's not really realistic, but oh, you got to have dreams. It's, it's be-
0: so funny because sometimes I think to myself, do I really want to try at something if I, if I can't be the best at it? If I know it's going to get under my skin if I'm trying really hard at something and I'll never be better than that guy. And sometimes that reduces my motivation to do something. Now you were, in a very specific sense, the best in the world. Nobody had ever jumped that high and high jump. Now it did get broken eventually and you even knew it. I may be the world record holder, the best to ever do it right now, but even I can't put all my coins in that, put all my, put all my eggs in that basket because it's going to get broken and I can't put my, you know, validation on being the best forever because that's just not going to hold up.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, some people need that, some people don't. I just, it, it's kind of cool. It, it's something that I did in my past that it's still like I have good thoughts about it, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't define who I am now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I respect that. Who, who did end up breaking it? You said just the next day or, you know, hours later. Stones, Dwight Stones. Dwight Stones, mm-hmm. I got gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it doesn't get too abstract to talk about, if you didn't define yourself by high jump and and becoming a world record holder, what did or in present tense do you then replace that where maybe you would have said, I'm, I'm you know, define myself by the world record and I'm, you know, valued and good because I'm a high jumper. What replaced that? what was instead of that how you do define yourself?
1: family, you know flat out, you know um, having a relationship with my wife of fifty years on, uh, well, actually it'll be our anniversary will be fifty years in in august twenty second of this year. family and raising uh, children, you know, and having them become responsible adults um, that's what I'm most proud of. you know the second thing is is i I did affect the lives of thousands of youth in the albany community running the the sports programs right so i feel good about you you know as as much as athletics uh was uh important for and valued for me plus just playing fun you know there are some aspects of, of learning learning about the the hard knocks of life so to speak and sports is a good venue so I was able to hopefully give most of the kids a positive sporting experience with that.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's, that's,
1: you know, that, that probably, so basically I had two jobs. Yeah. That was jumping and, 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 <laughs> and, and athletic administration and, and right. then, um, family. And I, I'd say that's family's number one. Uh, so, but yeah. I,
0: uh, it's really fascinating because I'm recording this interview just a few minutes after finishing a conversation with Gabe Avgard, who played football at Oregon State. And I'm not sure, you know, the order of when I'll release these. This might be a week or two from now. But point being, I just finished a conversation with him. And he just got married within the last year. He's about 11 months into marriage. Now, you are, what was the number you said? How far are you into, into your <laughs> 50 years. Okay. So about on, you know, pretty far ends of the spectrum there in terms of experience and newness to the game. And we talked about marriage for a while and and the concept we kind of discussed was sometimes it's it's easy to put your validation in your spouse and expect them to complete you, to expect them to be your identity and that can be overwhelming, overtaxing. That that even they, being as great of a person as they may be, can be almost too much of a burden or pressure on them. Have have you ever experienced that of defining yourself by family and then seeing the pros and cons of that? Do you, have you ever experienced anything like that?
1: I haven't. I haven't really delved into that very much. Okay. Uh, so I, I yeah I just I I'm a, I'm astounded that you know I I the whole way I ended up getting to Oregon State, uh, being recruited by uh, you know, Coach Wagner, and then meeting my wife at a dance there. And then you're like, say, well, so it's more than, it's it's 53 years later, you know, yeah. we're still on speaking terms and kind of like each other every morning when we wake up. Yeah. Little sparkle in the eye. Um, so yeah, and I just, I guess, I just, we just do stuff and just, and lots of times we have the same thoughts about what we should be doing, which is really kind of scary okay. or kind of cool. Yeah. You
0: know, okay. Yeah.
1: So, but yeah.
0: Yeah. I got you. Um, let's talk about 1968 for a moment and the Olympic trials, which was a crazy year. It was really fun to read. in the wizard of Foz, the book you mentioned briefly, Bob Welch did a great job writing about Dick Fosbury. You were mentioned a lot and quoted a number of times in in stories involving you at least. And um, I'm not sure if you were at the Los Angeles trials, but it was a weird Olympic trials year where there were basically two Olympic trials. And the book kind Mm -hmm. of delves into the controversy and the confusion of, wait, we thought Los Angeles was the Olympic trials and people who qualified there would make it. But then there was some like, well, no, if they do well in Tahoe up in the altitude, then we'll choose them. And there's this whole sort of weird situation going on. But what were your memories of going down to Tahoe? the experience both in and outside the athletic competition cuz you're there for a while just hanging out with the other athletes and experiencing even maybe working there some of the athletes worked a job you know, mm-hmm. at the cafe or whatever it was so what are the memories that are most vivid of the 1968 olympic trials for you uh
1: the first one was that i was away from my sweetheart yeah she was still back in oregon so that kind of sucked <laughs> but other than that um um as i said they took like 10 people from the the, the The Los Angeles trials, and I was lucky enough to be the tenth person you know so I was just going oh man i'm I'm a lucky dude. I get to spend my summer training at at altitude at lake tahoe uh and so um the the first thing was a lot of joy that I got to do it and then we went up and looked at the track, and the track was just incredibly beautiful um it's Uh, there's a picture in the book uh, fairly on the first pages there that that the track was actually cut out in a forest and they left a bunch of trees in the middle and around the outside of the track and so um it seemed to me like a a, almost like a cathedral in Mm. fact when i went to Sangre de cristo uh you know uh it was the same thing you know this is this is just inc- incredible and so it was a, a state-of-the-art track so it was nice and springy and stuff so it was really good to train on um there weren't a lot of us there at one time you know so it was kind of like you were just it was just it was it was a private club basically you know for people that could run fast and jump on and throw things uh and it was it was the you know temperatures were really nice too was, and then the altitude really didn't make much difference for us jumpers. Uh, in fact, the air is minusculely thinner and um, gravity is minusculely lighter. So one would think one might have uh, a, you know, an eyelash uh, more height from jumping with that particular thing. So, but it was just cool to do and the fact that that's all i had to do was was train uh and and eat uh and uh recuperate and so uh, i did have a job i drove uh the, the van of, of athletes down to the casinos a couple nights a week i would drop them off at seven then pick them up at ten or eleven i don't remember when it was and stuff and uh heard some interesting stories about one time they had this big plan and a bunch of people pooled a lot of money and they went down and they were going to play the, uh, the roulette wheel and they're going to bet either black or white every single time. Cause eventually it's going to come up. But <laughs> it went the wrong color way many times and people are wondering if they actually, everybody bet all the money they really said or if somebody got some on the side. So that was, it was kind of interesting, and it 's also kind of interesting to think of you know uh, athletes going down and gambling i wasn 't old enough to gamble in myself, so mm. I could just you know <laughs> drop them off and I could walk around and stuff but uh, it, it was it, it was an interesting part time job uh, and uh, almost every day well, we we actually lived in there were three bedroom trailers, no water, no toilet, so you had to walk you had to walk into a, a building they put these, these, put these trailers up at some private school so you had to you had to hoof it over go to the building and do all that stuff which was okay when you're young it would have really sucked now because i visit the restroom a little more often now so, <laughs> but um so that was kind of interesting and i guess who my roommate was mr Fosberry. Mm. and so i also had a, a little record player and, and a bunch of records from the music in the bay area where i grew up and so i think so i would i would leave i i think that i my music was an inspiration for him he he would be playing the songs when he was there and stuff uh, but realistically he wasn't there much he was he was training some other way you know so i didn't i didn't see i didn't see him a lot uh, yeah. but he's a a unique individual i can say that so then you know the, we would have to drive up to the track and then after practice, I'd go, down to, I'd go down and swim in the lake because it was a good way to uh, cool down, I thought. So I didn't have any problems swimming anywhere in the lake. The water was not too warm or too cold for me. So, uh, so that was about it. You know, eat, sleep, jump. And then, you know, a couple of days, go swimming, checking out the place. of Tahoe's a pretty place as well. Right. So that would, be, that would be about the extent of that. And then we had like three or four meets that summer. We had one in Eugene. Uh, we had one at Lake Tahoe where I got my first seven-foot jump.
0: Wow. And that was cool.
1: I, I was, and that was as a straddler. What was really good when he, was the, the official for the event was actually uh, a guy from the, the, the San Francisco Bay Area where I, where I used to jump in the all-comers meets, and he was my official. So I knew him, and he knew me, and it was so cool that he got to, he got to see me get my first seven-foot jump.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So it sounds like a, a paradise of sorts, just an amazing place where you're jumping and eating and you know driving to the casino and hanging out with these other tremendous athletes. And it seems like the furthest place from tragedy, and yet it very nearly was tragic for a moment in one of those swims.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. Now see, now that here's where we talk about differences of opinion.
0: Okay, yeah. Tell me your because, side then,
1: because yeah, because I didn't. I I, I said. To, to Bob, you know, facetiously, well, I guess he could say I saved his life, you know, but realistically, he wasn't in any danger, and um, I, I, I'd been a, a, I had my Red Cross senior life-saving badge, I grew up in the Bay Area, I swim in the ocean, and the waves, you know, I swam in the place every day, so when he got tired, I says, hey, Foz, just, just put your hands on my shoulders, and just, just lay in your back and float, and I, I, I got him over to the island, and I, I was ready to swim him back, uh, the same way I would have done that, but, uh, he, uh, he apparently had different, different, different memories of it, which was, it was shocked me because I felt bad because that was, you know, he, I had, he was like, it was my watch. He was under my watch and he, everything was under control.
0: The way that Dick seemed to put it in the book and the exact quote, I, mean, I wrote this down, Dick Fosbury himself said, I honestly don't think I could have made it on my own. It's a day I'll never forget the day my journey to be an Olympian almost ended. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what he said.
1: Right. Well, so that's, that's, that's apparently I didn't, um, how would you say I didn't assure him enough that things would be okay, but they were, <laughs> and we didn't collapse on the following bank, on the bank when we got okay. over there. He probably was shivering really good, but yeah. yeah. So anyhow, that's, that, that was one of the things, when I, it kind of bothered me when I heard that because I'm thinking, dang. And then I just, I'd done the same thing the week before with some of my other friends and nobody had any trouble, but you know, maybe Olympic high jumpers are not built to swim, that particular <laughs> one anyway. You know.
0: If nothing else, it's impressive that you swam someone else to shore because it's, it's not easy to swim with someone else holding on to you just the form of swimming and kicking re- whatever positioning their body is related to yours. Like it, will definitely hinder you. And it's impressive to make any progress through the water, let alone if you were willing to do it all the way from the Island back to shore, because it was about a thousand feet from the Island yeah, to yeah, shore. Yeah, yeah. So well, how it, did you do this? Well,
1: I used the breaststroke. That's You yeah. like, can do that forever. <laughs> you know, he's just floating. He's not, uh, it's not like, and also, I would imagine I was in pretty good shape then. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, it was, I just, it was, like I said, that really bothered me when I read that. But I did, like I say, I, I told Bob, yeah, I, I could have saved his life. But if it hadn't been for me, he wouldn't have been there. So <laughs> that's
0: fair. You were the one that talked him into swimming in the first place, so I, yeah, I guess yeah. it, it all comes around. Uh,
1: but he said, he said yes. <laughs> he said yes.
0: Well, maybe you should have been a, an Olympian in swimming and high jump. Maybe you had a calling in two areas then.
1: Actually, I used to be a, dive, a springboard diver.
0: Oh, that's right. We did and, talk and about I, that. It also.
1: was a, it was a choice between diving and high jumping, and high jumping wasn't as scary, <laughs> you know, So, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, last thing that, that we'll touch on here just from either the trials or um, in, any other memories. I mean, we've talked about kind of the, the biggest moments on paper of it's easy to look at the world records and say, oh, wow, that must have been the highlight. But when you think about your career and the moments like clearing seven feet for the first time and still doing that while straddling, not even the form that you used for the bulk of the rest of your career. What other moments do stick out even if they don't pop on paper that someone else might not, you know, write a story about, but make you particularly proud and are the ones that you enjoyed the most or meaningful? Any other ones either athletically or, or otherwise during that I time? Got, that I you got weren't... one for you. Yeah.
1: It's, 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 it's when I was in the eighth grade. I think I told you about it before. I watched the Russian USA track meet mm-hmm. at Stanford Stadium. Right. And, 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 and saw uh, Brumel set the world record. Yeah. Amongst all that other stuff. Um, th- that stands out in my mind as the, the high point of anything related to athletics that I've ever seen. And, and by, by virtue of the fact that I was able to do it again myself later on, it kind of ties it all back together and stuff. I had a I had a teacher in in middle school uh, where where I was when I you know saw that jump, and he had a, a sign on the top of, of the board that says "What I am to be, I am now becoming," hmm. and that still sticks in my brain right now, um, because what I was to be at that time, but I had no idea, you know, I was going to become a pretty good high jumper, you know, uh, yeah. so. Uh, and that's you know, that, and when I and I when I talk to kids especially, um, or students I should say, because they're they're they could be a third grader, they could be a college kid, college student. Uh, you know, I say, you know, you need to just try and do the best you can. You know, you never know what's going to be, you know, what what you're going to do down the bottom line. But whatever you pursue, give it your best. You know, and that way you'll you'll be able you'll be able to figure things out pretty well. You know it was interesting about Fosbury that after the Olympics, uh, his grades went to hell and he got kicked out of of uh, the engineering school. Uh, but that's what he wanted to do, so he came back and he begged with to to be able to to be back in the program and he says, "We'll take you back in, but you can't jump anymore. you know so here you have the you know the Olympic champion basically. He gave up his sport before he even really reached his prime. I, I had my best jump when I was 27. Yeah. You know? And he was done. Well, I guess he jumped on the pro tour one year, but he didn't really do that well. But so it's just, it's, it's kind of interesting how lives go things he did, things I did, you know, comparing comparing what we've done. I wouldn't have trained places with anybody the way my life's turned out right now, you know. And it was just so lucky that it did. You know, everything rolled around that I ended up at Oregon State, where I could learn to flop because mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have done anyplace else. But best thing was still meeting my wife, you know? <laughs> so, and then watching my kids, you know, uh, compete in athletics and you know, have fun too.
0: Yeah, well, let's make sure that she hears this podcast so she can hear all the the nice things that that you say about her. <laughs> oh, she just rolls
1: her eyes. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: My thanks again to John Ratatich for rejoining the podcast for part two. Without a doubt, the most impressive thing to me, and this kind of came up in the first episode, was just almost unimpressed he was by his own world records. I don't know if unimpressed is the right word, but certainly not arrogant about them, not putting his entire identity in them, not defining himself or thinking, I'm the man and I'm so great because of the world records. After all, they're going to get broken sooner or later. And for him, in one case, it was about a year later. And for the second world record, it was within a few hours. So I'm glad he had the foresight to realize, well, I can't bank on this being the thing that'll make me famous forever because it is an amazing story. But at the end of the day, that wasn't really what made him successful in life. So, I, I really appreciated his thoughts on that. More good conversations coming on the Beaver Tales podcast in future episodes as well. Hopefully, you can give me your feedback if you go to the website in the link description and uh, leave your email there. We can start a conversation. You can give me thoughts on this podcast and learn more about the Beaver Tales documentaries and what those are all about. So, check out that link in the description for this episode and join me next time on this podcast. Until the next episode, everybody, good night and go bees.